People say, oh, that's a cool idea. Well, if somebody says that's a cool idea, that means nothing. If someone says, wow, that's interesting, that means nothing. If they say to me, oh my gosh, I got to have that now, how much is it? Then I know I've got a good product. So I immediately test the marketability or viability of a product by how people respond to me. Hello, and welcome to the Upflip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Freeman. And on this episode, I'm sitting down with lean manufacturing guru and renowned entrepreneur, Paul Akers, to hear his expert advice on how to develop a product that sells. Paul Akers designed his first invention, the Fast Cap, in 1997. It was so successful, he grew a company around it. And in the 25 years since, Fast Cap has developed over 800 products, more than 20 products every year. Paul is truly a legend of product design and manufacturing, and I can't wait to hear his expert insights about generating product ideas, verifying their saleability, and bringing them to market with the best chance of success. Let's start the conversation. Paul, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Alex. So for any listeners that aren't familiar with your story, can you briefly share your background with Fast Cap and designing products? Absolutely. I'm a simple carpenter, simple cabinet maker. I built furniture in my home. I had a beautiful home shop and I was always a very curious person, always kind of improving everything, but very small business guy, very simple guy. I have my degree in education, didn't go to marketing school or an MBA or anything like that. And I basically got frustrated with a a simple problem that I was having and that was covering screw holes inside of cabinets. And one night in my shop at about eight o'clock at night, I was tired. I want to go to bed and I had to cap a bunch of uh, screw holes in this cabinet job that I was doing. I had to deliver the next morning. And I said, there's got to be a better way than the way that I've been doing it and everybody else had been doing it around the world. And I took a little piece of plastic, put some contacts adhesive on the back of it, stamped it out of a Christmas tree stamp that my wife had for creative memories for scrapbooking with photo albums, put it over the screw hole and it worked. And that's how it all started. So that first product born of, of your own your own frustration and needs, from there, how are you generating ideas for new products? Is that kind of creativity something that you're just kind of like born with, or is that a skill that you you have learned over time? Well, you know, the truth of the matter is, Alex, no, it is not something that's unique to me or other successful inventors. I think that God imbued into all of us this ability to solve problems. I think that's why he gave us this complex brain that can process and analyze and and work through things. The problem is most people just don't know how to develop products. And once you teach them how, once you do a little bit of training, you might find out that most people are capable of developing products. Sure, it's not going to happen in one month or six months or maybe even six years. It might take them 10 years to come up with a good, viable product. But it's all completely doable from any human being as far as I'm concerned. And we get all of our ideas from our customers. So we rely on our customers, not all of our ideas, I should say, but the vast majority of our ideas. We rely on the customers who use our products and are faced with problems in the cabinet making industry and carpentry industry every day to find viable solutions to their problems. They present them to us. If we like them, we put them on the market. So is that is that uh, harvesting ideas from customers, is that the number one strategy for brainstorming product ideas? Or is there are there other strategies to consider? No, that is FastCap's number one strategy. We certainly come up with ideas internally ourselves as well, because we're all cabinet makers and woodworkers and we understand the industry. But we're not presumptuous enough to think that we understand the industry better than people who are 
actually doing the work every day. See, we're not actually doing the work anymore. I used to do it for 30 years, but I don't actually swing a hammer anymore. But I know the industry very well. We rely on people who are swinging the hammer and using the saw to come up with the idea. So that is primary the strategy on which we develop products. And everyone in the world knows that about us. So they're really looking to us as the kingpin of innovation for the industry because they know our products are, they're not something that we came up with to make money, but they actually are problems that have been solved by the customer. And how early in that process are you considering the the market and product viability? Or is that something, you know, is that early in the brainstorming process or does it come later? It's immediate. And this is the process. It's so simple. So, you know, we're a lean company. People have listened to the podcasts on lean manufacturing. We do everything in such a, with great efficacy and simplicity. So all that happens is somebody will send me an email and every day I get these emails or these messages on WhatsApp or Signal or whatever way they choose to contact me, sometimes a text message. And they'll say, here's my idea. And I say, no, 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 send me a video one to two minutes long holding your phone horizontally and demonstrating your problem and your solution so I can see it. If I think it's good, I simply take that video, direct it to a beta tester chat. Now, this is a group of people all over the world who are carpenters and finished carpenters and cabinet makers. And I ask them, what do you think of this idea? And usually within 10 minutes, I get a reply back. And if they, there's three responses that I'm looking for. Number one is... People say, oh, that's a cool idea. Well, if somebody says that's a cool idea, that means nothing. If someone says, wow, that's interesting, that means nothing. If they say to me, oh my gosh, I got to have that now, how much is it? Then I know I've got a good product. So I immediately test the marketability or viability of a product by how people, how the beta testers respond to me. If they say, I got to have it now, oh my gosh, that's it. How much are we going to sell that for? I know I got some. That's fantastic. And this is a good point to, to remind our, our listeners that one, if, you, if you're new to the show, we have done previous interviews with Paul about lean, how to run a lean business, and also uh, some great YouTube videos with Paul on business ideas where, where you shared how to come up, validate an idea and, and all of that. Aside from creativity, what other skills are crucial for inventors and product designers? Ah, that's a very good question. So I am a aspiring chef. I like to cook a lot, but I'm not a professional chef. And let's say I come up with a product for the cooking industry. Do you think there's much of a viability that it's going to come up, it's going to be a a good product? The answer is probably not. Because what it turns out is people who are tacitly involved in a particular industry or discipline don't really know that industry really well, like pros do. So the most important tenet that an individual needs is to be an expert in the industry. So if you were a butcher and you wanted to come up with a product for butchers and you know, you'd been doing it for 20, 30 years and you knew this product didn't exist and there was a problem that exists that most people were having and you went to trade shows and it never, nobody ever solved the problem and you came up with a solution, uh, you know what? You'd probably be a good person to listen to. But if you were, you know, a weekend warrior chef, and you came up with a better way to sharpen your knife, I would say I would not give yourself too much credence. What is the timeline for new product development at FastCap from idea to launch? And how does that differ for someone who might be an independent inventor? 
Well, we're we're like no other company in the world. Nobody can do it like we do it. But uh, I mean, we've done products in just a few days. Had them on the market. You know, we do rapid prototyping. We have injection molding, CNC. We can do everything. We can manufacture everything. If we think it's good, boom, we could start making it and start selling it the same day. The average product takes about six months, three to six months, to get on the market for us, which is very, very, very fast. And we're launching, you know, twenty to thirty new products a year for the average company or the average single solo entrepreneur wants to develop their products could take five years, 10 years could take a long, long time because they'll waste a whole bunch of money along the way. The first thing they'll do is they'll go out and run get a pat and they'll spend 20 or $30,000 with an attorney, which absolutely means absolutely nothing. It's the biggest waste of money in the whole world. They should have taken all that money and invested it in the product development and getting the product to market. But this is the typical things that most people do. I think 95% of all patents that are filed in the U.S. patent office never get to market. So that's the first mistake people make. And then they get caught up in that whole rabbit hole and spend so much money. They don't have any money left. So can you talk us through those, those big picture steps of developing a new product? So if you come up with a good idea, I'm going to make the assumption that you're an expert in your field and you know what you're doing. The first step is you need to show it to two or three other, obviously trusted people who are professionals in your field and see what kind of response. Hey, that's a cool idea. Hey, I really like that. Or, oh my gosh, I got to have that right now. How much is that? I want to buy it. So that, that's the first step. You have to show it to two or three other people in your field who are competent at giving you a reasonable and fair assessment of it. And you're looking for that third response. Oh my gosh, I got to have that now. How much is that? That's step one. Step two is you need to develop a couple working prototypes and you need to give them to those two or three people that you showed them to and let them test them in the marketplace on a regular basis and see what the flaws are and issues are. Step four, do not call an attorney. Do not file a patent. Do not have anything to do with the legal aspect of it. Keep it relatively discreet. Don't tell a whole lot of people. Tell the few people you know that you can trust and work very diligently on developing those those prototypes. When you get the feedback from those two or three people, make the appropriate adjustments. You get it all ready to go. You start developing it so you can maybe produce 50 of them, 100 of them. You go and get a simple little website. You open up that website and you sell them direct. And eventually, maybe you'll be able to get them on Amazon. And then you ask the people who are buying them to post little video reviews and you get the product going very organically in a very simple, straightforward fashion. That's how you do it. Now, you, you've made mention uh, a couple times at, the, at this point about the patent process and the patent office being, being a waste of, of time and money. Um, can you talk a little bit more about, about why you feel that way? Well, it's completely and totally a waste of time. It's not just a little bit. It's just absolutely from start to finish. In Espanol, 100% 100% a waste of time. And the reason why is very simple. Because the legal world is a very mm, slippery slope, you might say. So you go ahead and get a patent, and then I'll just use me for an example, even though I'd never do this, but let's say I go ahead and knock your product off, and you find out about it, and you say, hey, Paul, you're, you're making a product that's just like mine. And I'm going to say to you, okay, Alex, what are you going to do about it? And you're going to go, well, I'm going to sue you. Okay, Alex, go ahead and sue me. So you go ahead and call up a law firm, and they say, what do you think about this? And they're going to say, well, you might have a case. Well, how long is this going to take? Well, the initial motions and letters and so forth could take about three to six months. Meanwhile, I've sold $200,000 worth of your product, and 
I say, and I say, well, how much is that going to cost? Well, I bill out at six, $700 an hour. So you could figure the initial over the first three months, you'll spend somewhere between 70 and a hundred thousand dollars. And you're going to say, I don't have 70 or hundred thousand dollars, but I just spent $30,000 on a patent to protect myself from this, but you don't have 70 or hundred thousand dollars to defend yourself. Well, you're up a Creek. You don't have any choices, but let's say, let's say you do have a hundred thousand dollars and you go ahead and mortgage your house and you tell your wife, Oh my gosh, it's the best product in the world. We're going to make millions of dollars. We need to defend ourselves. So you spend that hundred thousand dollars and then you find out that fast cap has very deep pockets and a hundred thousand dollars for us is nothing. So we go ahead and fight you and we wear you down. And next thing you know, you're up to a quarter of a million dollars. And you're really screwed. At this point, your wife's going to divorce you. You, you, you. you feel like a total fool. And you ain't one diddly. That's why a patent's worthless. So outside of the $30,000 to develop a patent, which can obviously go into the budget for developing the product, what are those development costs from taking an idea into a product for sale? Well, it always depends upon the complexity of the product. But in general, most people's products are not overtly complex. And you have to spend some money on cobbling together a prototype. And you generally, you can spend anywhere between you know $300 to $3,000 to maybe even $30,000, depending upon the complexity of the product. I'll give you an example. The tail lock is a, a lock system that we developed with Brian Way from Way Industries back in Boston. And basically, he had a big box truck, and people were always breaking into it and cutting the lock. So he developed a electronic pin system that locked his door on the back of his box truck so that you couldn't come up and cut it with a bolt cutter. So you couldn't get into it. It was virtually impossible. And Brian probably spent four or $5,000 getting the aluminum together, machining the parts, buying the electronic switches, buying the remotes, buying everything, consulting with maybe some electrical engineers a little bit on some of the, some of the circuitry on it. And he spent four or $5,000. Then he brought it to us and he said, Paul, this is what I got. And I said, oh, beautiful job, Brian. And we looked at it and then FastCap took it and we probably spent $10,000 re-engineering it and making it more suitable for the marketplace, less expensive to manufacture because he didn't know a lot about manufacturing. He just cobbled it together with existing ideas. So by the time that product was all said and done, I think we had well into $20,000, $25,000 in development costs before it got to market. Not counting molds and tooling. Molds and tooling on that product, probably another $20,000. So you know it, it can cost a little bit of money depending upon the complexity. Simpler products cost less. But if it's an injection molded part, you can figure an injection mold is going to cost anywhere between five dollars to $10,000, $20,000 to get a mold made after you've proven the concept. So say someone doesn't have, you know, that that cash laying around, uh, but they have this idea for a product that they want to develop. What kind of financing sources should they explore? Well, the most obvious one, the one that 90% of the people do is friends and family. And they just go to their family members or their, their mom and dad or whoever, and they say, mom and dad, I need some money. And can you help me out? And usually that works unless you're from a very poor family and there's no available resources, but that's generally what people do. The second option is to go to some company and solicit your idea to them. Most of the time, 90, 95% of the time, that's a dead end and that it goes nowhere. I, I have so many people that come to me that have talked to the big companies, whether it be Home Depot, Lowe's, DeWalt, Porter Cable, you name it, they went to all of them and they get they get nowhere. And then they come to us and literally within a week, their product is being developed and it's uh, 
it's marching towards going to the market. So there are three options, friends and family. You can go to the big guys and get screwed, or you can come to FastCap. And if we like the product, I'm not saying we're going to do it all the time, but if we like the product, it gets done very quickly, and then we end up financing the whole thing. And you get a 5% royalty on the sale price of the product. So if we sell it for wholesale, you get 5% of that. If we sell it for retail, you get 5% of that. It's very straightforward, boilerplate, simple, no smoke and mirrors. What about uh, crowdfunding to get a product to market? Oh, I've, I've seen many people do it. I've never seen it work, but I've seen many people do it. Usually, you know, the people who do the crowdfunding get nothing out of it. And, you know, there's an old saying, Alex, I'll tell you a great saying that everybody should know about. If you don't know this saying, you're going to have a very painful life. It's called OPM, other people's money. When someone's spending other people's money, it's not a good outcome. You just need to look what the government does with our money. If you're lucky, if you get a penny on the dollar. For a new product, how important is, is uniqueness? Like if similar products already exist, uh, should somebody abandon their, their thought or change their concept? No. No, it has nothing to do with uniqueness. In my mind, it has to do with whether or not it solves a problem. You know, you could have, for instance, I'll give you a good example. We have a product called the AccuScribe. There must be a thousand different scribes on the market for scribing cabinets and countertops into the walls. Yet we sell tens of thousands of our AccuScribes. Why? Not because it's unique, because it does something. You could say that's the unique part of it, but no, it does something. It solves a problem that nobody else solved. So you want to use the the nomenclature of unique? You can use it. But I think the real issue is, does it solve a problem? We call this in the legal world or the legal ease, a strong felt need. When there is a strong felt need for something, then it's viable that you could potentially get a patent on it and so forth and so on. I don't want to go into the whole patent thing, but this is the nomenclature that the attorneys use. It's a strong felt need. So we had an articulating head on our AccuScribe, which allowed it to get into very, very tight places where most scribes could not get in. That was a strong felt need. People needed to get into tight places. We solved the problem. Is it unique? Sure, it's unique. But the real issue is it solved the problem. For the individual inventor out there who maybe doesn't have the the beta testing group or the experience that FastCap does in gauging product demand, how do they go about doing that kind of research and gauging whether or not there will be enough demand for their product? Well, I'll go back to the to the previous answer, and you, you've got to find people who are who are pros. If you're a florist. And you've got to go to five other, three other florists, and you got to say, hey, I've got this new system for making arrangements. And again, if those florists look at it and say, oh my gosh, you know, I've been struggling with that for 20 years. Finally, somebody came up with a solution. That's really cool. I want to buy those. You know immediately. So I'm going to go back to the same answer I gave earlier. It's, you, you have to go to people who know the industry and are pros in it, and you can gauge really quickly, very fast, whether or not your product is relevant or not. Are there any other tools um, besides getting out and talking to people that people should be aware of in doing market research? Well, the most obvious one is just Google and click on the image tab and see what comes up. You know, locking system for box vans or box trucks. And then click on the image tab and see what comes up. It's very fast, very easy, and you can get a lot of research done in about 30 seconds. And then is there any uh, information that inventors should be looking at in that market research phase that might influence the end design of the product? You don't know what you don't know. And so there is no canned answer I can give you on that, what you just asked, because you need to work with the product. And as you work with the product, you will 
quickly and readily find out what the design elements are that are necessary for it to be highly functional and useful to a potential customer. So no, there's no, I can't give you any answer off the top of my head and I've got 800 products on the market. I, just, I, I always go back to what we call the Gemba. You got to go to the shop floor. You got to go to the people who use the product and let them test it and you'll develop the criteria necessary for the product. Using our our box truck locking system example, say somebody has a, a similar idea, but maybe doesn't have the access to the the tools required to actually machine the lock mechanism. What resources should they be looking for to get that prototype built? Most of the time, what I've found, Alex, is you can go down to the local hardware store and and get products that will suffice for your first draft. But if that isn't the case, you can find out who does rapid prototyping in your area. Uh, Do a Google search, rapid prototyping. And if that doesn't work, you can go on Amazon and buy a rapid prototype machine for $500, $1,000 and do your own rapid prototyping. And if that doesn't work, you can go to the local machine shop and have them make make a prototype. And then once you have that prototype, uh, can you talk us through the, the testing process? So obviously, you want to get it into that beta group's hands as kind of quickly as possible. But are there certain things that you should be asking them to test for? Or is it, you know, take this, run with it, see if it does what you need it to do? Anything that bugs you, anything that is not suitable and doesn't allow you to do the job without without a struggle. We say stopping the struggle. We want to... You want to be able to pull the tool out and it needs to function exactly the way you want it to function. And if it doesn't, you need to come back to us and say, hey, you know, this is not good enough. I'll give you a good example. So we have a something called the Sharpie clip. So uh, very common in our industry, people use Sharpie pins, you know, the black, pretty thick headed Sharpie pins. But the problem is they have a cap on the end. And every time you want to use it, you got to have two hands, you got to pull the cap off and away you go. So we made something called the Sharpie clip. But of course, it came to us from a carpenter who brought us the idea. And you push the Sharpie pin into the clip, twist it, the cap then locks into the clip. And then you clip the clip on your pants or in your apron. And then when you go to use the Sharpie, you just pull on it and the cap stays with the clip system, use the pen and put it back in. So it's a one-handed operation. It's called the Sharpie clip. Well, it turns out that some of our beta testers who use it all the time say, you know, it's a really good product. We like it, but you know, you didn't do the lead in very well. So when I put it onto my pants, I have to struggle a little bit to kind of get it seated because it's not really leading in well. Uh, you need to leave, you need to change your injection mold and smooth that out so that it just, when I put it on, there's no struggle, there's no resistance at all. And we missed it. And there you go. There's a good example of something that you're looking for ease of use, zero frustration, zero struggle, seamless uh, operation. So we're looking for those kinds of uh, things because we don't want to get it on the market and then frustrate people. What we want to do, though, Alex, is we want to get it on the market and we want people to rave about it. We want them to say, this company is so smart. This thing clips on my pants easy. My Sharpie went into it instantly. I pulled it out, pulled it off a hundred times. It works perfect. Oh my gosh, it's incredible. And then you've got a thousand more customers off of that one person as opposed to, yeah, it's kind of good. A little bit of a struggle. I had a hard time putting it on my pants. It, it, It bound up. I actually am tearing the edge of my pants now because they put a rough edge on there. Those are the two scenarios. 
So this is going to bring us to a section of our show we call our Fan Blitz questions. So these questions come from our YouTube community. Those of you out there listening, make sure you go find Upflip on YouTube. Join the community. You can then submit your questions for future podcast guests. So five questions from that community for you, Paul. Uh, Quick answers, 10 to 30 seconds. Here we go. One, uh, Education is asking, how do you find suppliers slash manufacturers that can make the specific product you want to make? Well, the typical scenario in today's day and age is people go to China. I don't recommend that, but that is a typical thing. So how do you find those people? Well, I'll tell you how I did it 21 years ago. I looked in this green book. I can't even remember, Erdsman's Catalog. I can't even remember the name of the book anymore, but there used to be these giant encyclopedias that were on engineers' desks that I got a hold of. And you could go in there and find people that were in every trade imaginable. So I went to someone in the printing industry and said, hey, can you make this product for me? Then I flew back to Illinois and uh, visited them and showed it to them. And they said, yeah, they could make it for me. And in short order, though, they couldn't make they couldn't keep up with my production. So I had to learn how to do it myself. So, you know, you, you do the Google search, you find people that might be in like similar industry. If it's aluminum manufacturing, if it's injection molding, you look up injection molding, uh, you look up uh, wood fabrication, uh, you know, whatever it is, whatever it is you're trying to make and start talking to people. And you're probably going to talk to about 30 or 40 people before you find someone that's interested in doing your project. Because the problem in the beginning is the numbers are small. And most people don't want to invest all the time and effort to help you develop your product. And then maybe you, you do take it to China then. And then they've spent all that time trying to get you up, off the ground and then it disappears. So that's that's one aspect. But I always encourage people to figure out how to make it themselves. I mean, most things you could figure out how to buy a few machines, a little bit of equipment and figure out how to do it yourself. And it's not insurmountable. That's basically what I did. I had somebody make it for me for about three months. And then I went on and started buying machinery and equipment that I'd never heard of or seen before in my life. And I figured out how to do all this stuff on my own. Joe is asking, how do you prevent design fixation? Well, you become a lean thinker and then you, you, you won't have that problem because you'll understand that it's not about you. It's about other people's ability to function effectively with the product. So if you're not a lean thinker, you're probably going to be a little bit of an egomaniac potentially, and you'll be obsessed with your design and your, your, and your, your, this, and your, your, that, and everything else. So, you know, you have to get yourself off the throne is the best answer I could give you. TT is asking, what is the most profitable product that you developed? Well, I've developed a lot of very profitable products. So, I mean, the most, I don't know that it's relevant the most, but I've, I've developed uh, the fast caps profitable, the speed brace is profitable, the third hand is profitable, the glue bot's profitable. I mean, I could just go on and on. I have a long, long list of products that are very profitable, as well as I have a very long list, a longer list maybe, of products that are not profitable. And a uh, fifth question here, to what do you attribute your success? That I'm a C and D student that I don't think too much of myself, even though most people could be listening to this and saying this guy's kind of cocky, that I'm a C&D student, that I don't have an MBA, I didn't go to MIT, I didn't go to JPL, I didn't do any of that stuff, and that I'm just super curious. And I'm willing to listen to other people. And I listen to other people all day long, and I don't think I've got genius disease and I'm the only one that knows how to develop a product. And that is the key to my success. 
So that is going to do it for our fan blitz questions. Again, those came from our YouTube community. Those of you listening out there, go find Upflip on YouTube. Plenty of great, informative videos with entrepreneurs of all stripes, including Paul, there on the channel. Join the community. You can submit questions for future guests. Paul, just a few more questions from me here. How do you know that a product is ready for sales production? Are there signs that you look for that you know, okay, now it is time to launch the product? Yeah, nothing's ever nothing's ever ready, Alex. <laughs> nothing's ever ready. Every everything is going to continually be changed. I mean, every one of our products is being improved all the time. But the answer to your question is: you've done your due diligence. You've let an adequate number of people handle and use the product, and you've sorted through most of the things that they brought to your attention, and you've addressed all those issues. And it's time to launch. And then you get it out there three to six months and you find out there are a couple of the things you missed and you make those changes and you keep rolling with the punches because that's just the way it is. You need to look at Apple's watch. You need to look at Apple's phones. You look at Samsung and everybody else there. They have never produced a perfect product at all, but it's good enough. And then what are those challenges in, in scaling from a prototype to mass production and how do you plan for those challenges? Again, I'll give you an answer in Espanol because I think in Espanol it's paso por paso, step by step. Espacio pero seguro, slowly but surely. So you you can't, nobody can map this out exactly as it's going to go. You have to take one day at a time and you scale as it comes to you. The best advice I could give you regarding this is you need to speak with someone like myself or somebody else who has experience and be asking your mentor regular questions, you know, like, hey, Paul, what would you do in this situation? This is what I'm up against now. And I'd say, okay, this is what you should do. But if you try to reinvent the wheel completely on your own, it's going to be both costly and timely, where there are people out there like me that are more than willing to help people at no charge, just to give them advice. And that's what I recommend. Get a mentor who knows what's going on. I I had a mentor, Dennis Gazar, who was an aerospace engineer, and I brought my ideas to him. And he gave me more great advice than anyone I could. He was just the most amazing guy. He was just spouting off wisdom every time he opened his mouth. And I listened very carefully to what he did. And I took 99% of his advice. There's one piece of advice I didn't take from him. And I was right that I didn't take it from him. But everything else he told me, he was right on the money. And then as you get ready for that initial product run, the production run of of a new product, how do you size that production run? I would say you undersize it. I would say it would be better to size it and come up short than size it and come up long and have a bunch of product that doesn't work or needs to be reworked or you have a bunch of money invested in something that you have to throw out. So I would rather have the pressure of demand than the pressure of throwing stuff in the dumpster. So undersize is the answer. And how long before launch should you start marketing that new product? And what what strategies are you using to generate buzz and interest pre-launch? Well, you know, I'm that that's one of the things I do that one of the, some of the advice from Dennis Gazar that I didn't take, and that was I, I strictly do air all my marketing with my phone, my iPhone, and I shoot short little videos horizontally. They're a little corny, they're not super hyper professional. Dennis thought I should do everything really corporate and professional. And I said, No, that's not the way the world is going. So I say just make a simple video showing the problem and the solution. Keep it under two minutes and post it on YouTube. Get it to all friends and family, have them pass it around, particularly people in the trade or in the industry that you're addressing. And if it's good, it will spread like viral. And that's how my videos have gone. And then how important is packaging design for the success or failure of a new product? Does it matter or does it not matter? It matters. It matters way less than you think, but it matters. I'm a difficult person to ask on that question because a lot of my products are simply marketed, you know, 
direct on our website. They're, they're not sitting in a store in a retail environment. Really? When you buy an iPhone, mm-hmm. are you buying the iPhone because Apple's got the sexiest package, packaging in the world? <laughs> no. No, no. You could care, you could care less. <laughs> Apple does that to make themselves feel good. It has nothing to do with you. You could care less. If that thing came in a brown paper bag, that's all you care about because the thing works. And that's what people care about. Does it work? When deciding to to launch a product, what is the checklist of things for an inventor considers to consider? So like the when, where, and how to launch that product, what are what is going into those decisions? Well, it used to be that the most common way to launch a product was at a trade show. Trade shows I'm not a big fan of them anymore. So I would say the main thing you need to know and do is the place where people in the industry that you're addressing gets their information. So if you're a plumber and you go into a plumbing supply store, you might want to make sure the rep at the plumbing supply store is aware of your product. That would be one one vehicle. But the most obvious way, to be honest with you, is YouTube. You know, I, I, I tell people the story. I had $1.5 million worth of airplanes so I could fly. I'll have two airplanes, fly all over the world, fly over the United States, making sales calls and doing everything else. I sold all my planes because I started putting my videos on YouTube. So I took a $1.5 million investment and put it aside for my $1,000 iPhone and YouTube. And my YouTube does way better than the airplane does and all the sales meetings that I used to attend. And how does that the the timing and format of the launch impact the odds of success for a product? Nothing. Nothing has nothing to do with it. Just, you know, the, the key to, is just get your product on the market. You know, that's why the patent is such a, a colossal waste of time. You'll spend years trying to get the patent and protect yourself and having sleepless nights and talking it over with your wife or your husband and saying, oh my gosh, someone's going to rip me off. If somebody rips me off, forget about all that nonsense. Get the prototypes built, get a small production run made, make a website, get it on the market, period. You'll figure it all out step by step, paso per paso, despacio pero seguro. It's that simple. Stop worrying about all that nonsense. It's all nonsense. And once you get that product launched, um, there's all sorts of things to manage there, logistics of inventory, shipping, fulfillment. Uh, What systems are you using to manage those, those aspects and what advice do you have for people who maybe haven't done it yet? It wouldn't be the same if I answer. It wouldn't be an appropriate answer, Alex, because we're a very sophisticated, yeah. you know, <laughs> tens of millions of dollars a company in 40 countries. Any answer I give you is like shooting a, a fly with a bazooka. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. So, you know, the average inventor coming up with a product, they can manage everything they need to do on QuickBooks. So, you know, you got a $100 program, whatever it costs. I don't know what it costs these days. You know, you don't need any more than that. And you should be able to manage your inventory on a spreadsheet. And then beyond that, you need to be counseling with, someone who is your mentor who can advise you on on scaling those things at the appropriate time but right now i'd be handing you a machine gun to 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 shoot an ant it wouldn't be appropriate and then i think that you know the other last big question about a new product getting to market is finding that that pricing how do you determine what the correct pricing for a product should be I'll never forget asking that question to one of my mentors, Dave Lepke. I remember I remember where I was when I asked Dave that question. I remember every last detail. And I said, Dave, how do I price this thing? And he goes, Paul. And Dave at the time had 800 employees and uh, was doing school agendas. And he was a very successful guy. And he was my mentor advising me. And he said, Keystone, Paul. I said, what the hell is Keystone? He goes, Keystone margin. If it costs you a dollar to make it, sell it for $2. <laughs> I go, oh, 
Okay, thanks, Dave. I appreciate that. It's pretty much that simple. You can figure also that if you're going to go to distribution, which I don't really recommend anymore. Back in the day when I did it, distribution was common. So for instance, if I to cost me a dollar to make something, I would sell it for $2 and the distributor would buy it for $2. Well, the distributor also wants to make good margin and they love a keystone margin. They don't have to get a keystone margin. They can get a 30% markup. But if you give them a keystone margin where they buy it for $2 and they sell it for $4, do you think they're going to be happy with your product? You bet they're going to be happy with your product and you bet they're going to want to promote it. So it ends up to a four-time multiplier by the time it gets to the consumer if you're going through distribution. And I, I guess on the distribution question, like, should inventors be aiming to get their product into stores or should they be aiming to s- set up a website and a platform to sell directly to consumers? Short answer, website, direct consumer. But let me explain what the obstacle is. So you take someone like me. I'm a cabinet maker. Got a two-man shop, two, three-man shop. I got a couple employees working for me. I call up my local distributor, uh, Lewis & Company, who's located in five states and, you know, they're a $30 million company. And Joe Blow, Paul Akers calls them up and say, I got this cap I want to sell you. And they're like, do you know anything about distribution? Can you deal with the supply chain issues that we have to deal with? We have 30 branches. And they're like, I'm going to add you as a vendor and you're a Joe cabinet maker. I don't think so. So getting into distribution is not very easy. Now, I managed to do it because I, am, I did not give up. Unfortunately, I had a good product, too. But the bottom line is it's not easy to get into distribution. If you can do it, that's great. But most distributors are not going to want to deal with a little mom and pop uh, startup uh, invention company unless your product's incredible and they really see the viability of it. And then maybe they'll do it, right? So maybe they won't. That's why I recommend just go direct. And today's with the technology age, the communication with Facebook and all the other vehicles we have and Instagram. If you can't sell your product on the internet, you ain't got a product. On the on the distribution question, if you are go if you are trying to go that route, what kind of material should you be putting together to show them that so that they may consider your product? Currently, in today's day and mark day and age, if you want to get their attention, you send them a one to two minute video and let them watch it, and that will be enough. And then let them pull the information from you that they want. So if they say, "Okay, I need pricing, I need price breaks." I need uh, a sell sheet that I can send out to my sales staff or whatever they, you know, they'll determine what they need. But in today's day and age, a YouTube link with a one to two minute video shot horizontally, home run. And once that product is launched, what metrics are you looking at to determine if it's a success? A reorder. Uh, this is another great, this is another great answer that I got from one of my mentors. My, my uncle, my uncle Will from New York, he's uh, Dominican really savvy guy in the oil industry. And I'll never forget the conversation I had with him too. I was selling my product. I go, Uncle Will, I, I, I sold, you know, I sold a thousand dollars worth of my product. He goes, Well, Paul, they might just be filling the pipeline. That means absolutely nothing. And I go, what the hell are you talking about, Uncle Will? He goes, well, it means absolutely nothing until they reorder over and over again. Then you know you have something. They could just be filling the pipeline. What information are you using in after the initial launch to maybe further refine the design of the product or the marketing that you're using around that product? Your phone number being readily accessible to everybody that uses your product. So if you have a website, you had to plaster your cell phone number right on the homepage. Like you can get it to me very simply, very easily. Here I am running a gigantic company and everyone can 
access me with no problem because I want to know if there's a problem. So get your phone number out there and make sure people can get a hold of you. You know, when's the last time, Alex, you tried to contact a company and get to somebody who can give you a a viable answer? The answer is, you know, it's almost impossible. You, you get some flunky who doesn't know what the hell they're doing or has no authority to do anything. You want to be accessible to your customer base so they can get direct feedback to you. Say you launch the product and it isn't selling well. What what steps do you take to identify and fix that problem? Well, there are two answers to that. Number one, maybe you didn't do your market research or your beta testing properly if it's not selling well because your beta testers were telling you this is a great product and I want to buy it right now. Either you weren't listening to them, that would be one option. So, you know, you don't want to have that situation. And then the other, the second option is I'll give you a couple examples. So for instance, I developed two products that I can think of off the top of my head that did not go well. It took two years before they, they gained traction. The power head screw, this giant, the screw that I developed with this great big head on the end of it, I knew it was a good idea because I was a cabinet maker and there's a problem that I had of screws pulling through when you put them together. But for whatever reason, the, the market didn't, didn't gravitate to it. And I remember catching lots of crap from everyone in my company, including my wife, that, you know, we just spent $50,000 on screws. We got screws coming up our, our yin-yang. We don't even know what to do with all these freaking screws. We can't even afford to keep them in our warehouse. And no one's buying these damn things. And I'm like, I know it's a good idea. Just be patient. Today, it's a gazillion dollar product line, and we sell a hell of a lot of them. It takes sometimes a little bit of time for market to accept it. So if you have the money and you can afford to hang out there, that's good. In this case, I was the expert, Alex. I was the cabinet maker. I knew the problems. I knew that the product was good. I was patient. Other people weren't because they, they didn't have the experience I had. And I, I prevailed. But most of the time, that's not the case. If a product's not selling well, it's because you probably screwed up and didn't do your market research. But there are cases where you need to be patient. Uh, the flip side of that, you launch a new product and it it sells gangbusters. Um, what do you do to build off of and, and grow that success? Well, oftentimes you want to go to your customers and say, is there any other iteration that I need to be considering? And indeed, that's exactly what happened, for instance, with the powerhead screw. So we came up with the powerhead screw for wood. And then a lot of our carpenters are saying, well, we're working with metal studs and the wood screw doesn't work. You need a, you need a powerhead screw with a self-tapping metal configuration. I go, oh my gosh, that's brilliant. So they told us of another iteration and we came up with a whole nother iteration. And then after that, people came to us and said, we don't really like square drive and you made all your screws to square drive. We want Torx. Torx is industry standard, particularly in Europe. So you need to change your head to Torx. So now we have a square drive and a Torx and a metal and you know we've got a full complement of products just based on the customer feedback. What's the biggest mistake you've made with new product development and what did you learn from it? Thinking that everyone thinks like me. So I am a little bit of an unusual bird because I appreciate the tiniest improvement, the, the, the most subtle nuance that allows me to do my work more effectively. Most people can tolerate a lot of crap before they go, I can't do this anymore. And so I learned that not everybody has to have everything super organized and very, very refined to a Nat's rear end. 
for me, that's the way I have to have it. I have my chopsticks in a certain place in my silverware drawer. I have my my forks very neatly organized, stacked on top of each other, and they can't slide off from side to side. I have my spoons the same way. I have my bowls exactly the same way. I don't have five different kinds of bowls. I have one kind of bowl. You know, I haven't got a complement of 30 years of bowls stacking up in my cupboards. You know, I'm not a normal person, and I had to come to grips with that, that not everybody thinks the way I think. So I don't get too engrossed in my ideas, particularly if the people around me, those beta testers are saying, yeah, Paul, I see what you're saying, but it's really not that important. I'm going, but it is important. No, it's not important. Finally, uh, and I think we've talked about a few of these uh, throughout this conversation, but what traditional advice about new product development is outdated or no longer applies in 2022? And what should inventors be doing instead? Well, the most obvious one that comes to mind is that you need somebody to help you do it, and you don't. You can do it all on your own with a website and some in-house product development and some in-house manufacturing. You can do it all yourself. I know I'm working with a gal right now who created a dust collection system for drill presses, and I have never in my life ever met, and all the inventors has ever come to me, I've never met anybody who is more resourceful and applied creative thinking to the manufacturing and development process than Trish. And she is literally one of the most amazing people I've ever met. And she's just a, you know, a podunk little, you know, cabinet maker working in her shop. And she developed a beautiful product and the manufacturing of it was impeccable. And it was just hats off to it. So you don't need, you don't need anybody else. If you're resourceful, you can figure it all out yourself. That is going to do it for this episode of the Upflip Podcast. Make sure you check out our YouTube channel where we have several interviews with Paul Akers and also check out our blog for more business tips and strategies. You can find links to all those places in the resources section of this episode. Paul, thank you again for joining us. Absolutely, Alex. And you know, I might say this as well. I don't have any problem with any of your listeners contacting me directly to ask me a question. You can get me on WhatsApp. You can put my cell phone number out there, 360-941-3748. But I'm going to say one caveat to all of you. You cannot drive me crazy. I mean, you send me a quick audio message or send me a quick video. Paul, this is my product. This is, this is what I'm doing. You have any comment? I'm happy to help you. But it can't turn into me listening to three hours worth of your messages all day long because I get contacted by hundreds of people every day. I love helping people, but you got to be pithy. Awesome. I love it, Paul. Thank you for that generous offer. And I'm sure many of our listeners will take you up on it. Perfect. Perfect. 